Have you ever been uh, cruising through life, enjoying the ride, thinking to yourself, boy, you know what, everything's just perfect, only to suddenly have your world turned upside down? Perhaps you can relate to uh, the passengers who were on a uh, jetliner. They were relaxing in their seats for the long flight. The voice came over the loudspeaker had just announced that the aircraft had reached its cruising altitude and that the passengers were free to unfasten their seatbelts and move about the cabin. Then the voice continued said, ladies and gentlemen, we're proud to announce that, you're on a, you're, that you are flying on the maiden voyage of one of our brand new fully automated jetliners. These new jetliners are the pride of our fleet and have no need for pilot, co-pilot, or navigator. All human error has been eliminated. You needn't be alarmed, as everything from cabin pressure to speed and altitude is completely controlled by our computer. We're excited about the world's first fully automated airplane, and we hope you are too. So just sit back and relax, and remember... Nothing can go wrong. Nothing can go wrong. Nothing can go wrong. Nothing can go wrong. You know, that story reminds us that things can and often do go wrong in this life. That in a moment in time, our world can be completely turned upside down. I'm thinking at this moment of uh, the wife and children of a man that I know who recently decided that he no longer wanted to be married. Or the husband and children of a man and his family whose wife decided to leave them for another man. Or the young man who had been told that he had a malignant tumor in his shoulder. He was on his way to being an orthodontist. He had his whole career and his life planned out before him, only to be shattered by that news. I'm thinking about two women that are friends of ours. One is fighting colon cancer and the other breast cancer. And in a moment in time, their whole world was shaken, turned upside down by the news that they received from a doctor. I'm reminded also of a friend who recently was progressing quite well in his company, so he thought only to be called into the boss's office on a Friday afternoon late and told that his services were no longer needed. Or the athlete with a promising career who had a career-ending injury. A couple of weeks ago, we're in the uh, final stages of a design process, so we're in the construction industry, and we started this about March, April. And uh, we're a part of a team who were in the process of designing to build two hotels in the San Diego area. The gentleman who had purchased the land was putting together these two projects, and we're just about ready to finalize the plans after hours and hours of negotiation and planning and development and design. And just as he was about to turn those plans into the city, the lending institution who was going to fund this project decided that with everything going on in the world, particularly in the hospitality industry, that they would no longer put up the money to build the projects. And here he is sitting with a piece of property that basically is dirt, and there's not much he can do with dirt uh, other than grow something on it, which may be something he may be considering. But uh, at this point, there'll be no hotels coming out of it, at least not in the near future. And in just a moment in time, our world can be shattered you know, we, we want to believe that nothing can go wrong, but we all know better. And in a moment in time, as I said, our world could be turned upside down. I was watching one of those, I don't know if you ever watch those TV shows that, that, that are like those amazing video shows. And I was watching that this past week, and it ties into what we're going to be discussing. But there was, it was a video of a, a guy who was driving a speedboat, and it was in one of those races that are out in the ocean. And this boat, this high-speed boat that he was, that he was uh, piloting, was going about 160 to 180 miles an hour. Man, it was just a beautiful sunny day, and that thing was just clipping across the top of the waves. And, man, it was just, you know how they kind of get up in the air. And 
Well, he tried to slow down to about 100 miles an hour to navigate the turn that he was about to go into, but he hit the wake from another boat. And as he hit the wake with the camera still rolling, that boat flew straight up in the air like this, flipped over three or four times, and then landed upside down. And the camera still rolling inside the boat showed the, 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 the gentleman who was piloting the ship uh, pinned upside down underneath in total darkness, trying to figure out which end was up, how to get out. And in confusion and daze from the accident, you know, he, he couldn't figure out how to save himself. And, you know, and you just think in one moment in time, everything in our life could just be turned totally upside down. Darkness and confusion and all that follows it. You know, and while on an individual basis we can relate to such life-changing experiences or occurrences, on the grandest scale of all, this world that we live in has been turned upside down. If you stop to think about it, the world that we now live in is not the world that God had originally created. The fall of man. And it's so important that we understand that that decision that was made by a man in a moment in time God gives us his name as Adam. And when Adam decided to rebel against the authority of God and sin entered into the world, this world was changed and turned upside down. Because of that rebellion or sin, the Bible says that through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world. And through sin has come death. Physical death is a result of sin. The fact that you and I die, the soul that sins will surely die. Physical death and also spiritual death, the separation from God that we are born alienated or separated from God in rebellion against Him and His authority. And the world was turned upside down and the resultant curse because of that sin, this world is not the same world that God originally created. But there is coming a day when this world will be changed once again. There's a day coming when the Lord Jesus Christ and all of His glory will come again and descend upon the, the face of this earth. And He shall walk once again as He did thousand, two thousand years ago. And he will establish his kingdom here on this earth. And for a thousand years he will reign. And the Bible says that God's will will be done on earth just as it is today in heaven. And yet at the end of the thousand years there will be a time that comes where at the end of that, that God will judge all of humanity once and for all. And that this world that we live in now will be uncreated and that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the Bible goes on to say that and he will wipe away every tear and there will no longer be any sickness or sorrow or suffering or any ramifications of sin. And the world will be once again the way that God originally designed it, but without the ill effects of sin. And yet in the meantime, while we await that day, God is not idly sitting by. In redemptive history, He has throughout that time period sent into the world messengers of His to warn the world of the consequences and judgment of God of the effects of sin and the ramifications through all of eternity. To warn the world that all of us are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God and none of us are righteous, no matter how good we think we are, we fall short of the standard of God, which is perfection. To tell the world that God has laid out a standard, His laws or His principles, and, and that we're to warn them and tell them that if we fall short of them and to help them to understand that, you know what, God says that thou shalt not lie if you lie, you're guilty of sin. Thou shalt not steal if you steal or cheat in any way defraud another person, you're guilty of sin. If you don't always keep God first in your life, if you've never always honored your mother and father, if you covet your neighbor's goods or want something that somebody else has, whether it's their job or their title or their money or their material things, that we fall short of God's standards. The purpose of all of that is to help us understand what God knows about us and some of us don't understand, and that is that we are all guilty as charged before God. 
And if guilty is charged, the consequences or the sentence is death and eternal separation from God. God has sent his messengers into the world to, to help redeem or cause redemption to be found in man. And that God has said, hey, although you're a sinner and separated from me in the end, all result or consequences is eternal damnation or, or separation from me. I love you nonetheless. And he sent his son into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. When were we lost at that moment in time when our father Adam sinned? And yet we all come into the world sinners and we have all chosen to sin as well. And so he says that, you know, we, we need to warn people. We need to let them know, because I'll guarantee you that people are cruising along in life the moment that they die and they stand before God in judgment, their world will be shattered and turned upside down, who thought that somehow or another they were pleasing enough to God that God would have to let them into heaven. And so as we look at this, we think of people like Elijah who ministered during the darkest days of Ahab's reign. Ahab was an evil man more so than any of his predecessors on Israel's throne, and even worse, he was married to Jezebel who was the wicked daughter of a pagan king of Sidon. With her inciting him and, 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 uh, and leading him astray, he, he led the nation down the ruinous path to idolatry. Sent to confront Ahab's wickedness, Elijah prophesied that a devastating drought would strike Israel, who was sent by God to warn, Eli to, to warn Ahab that he was an evil man and that God would cause judgment upon him and the nation because of that. He so upset Ahab's world that when the two finally met face to face for the first time, Ahab looked at him and said this, Is this really you, you troubler of all of Israel? You troublemaker running around telling people that God is going to judge us because of sin, because of rebellion against God. You're stirring up the people and you're causing a whole bunch of trouble. You're a troublemaker in our land. Jeremiah and Amos and Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, they were all accused of turning their worlds upside down, of causing trouble. And like them, the Apostle Paul and his companions also shook up complacent sinners. You know, in virtually every city that Paul visited, he caused a disturbance for God's sake. Every city, without exception. In fact, as we get to chapter 17, he's just left the city of Philippi, uh, where he had upset the unbelieving Greeks. And to his enemies, Paul was, according to Acts chapter 24, he was a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. Man, this guy is a real pain. The question as we get to Acts chapter 17 is this. What characterizes a person who shakes up their world for God's sake? You know, turn with me if you've got Acts 17 in front of you where we discover how to turn your world right side up. Now I want you to stop and think about this as we get to chapter 17 and that's this. If sin has turned our world upside down from God's original creation, if sin has turned the world upside down and we know that it has... And we turn our world upside down with the gospel. We're really turning the world right side up for God. You follow that? I know it's early. It's a, you got it? The world is upside down. And everywhere we go, we turn that upside down world upside down with the gospel. We're turning the world right side up. So in Acts 17, we're going to learn how to turn our world right side up. Starting with verse 1, we read these words. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. 
He is the Savior of the world. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed the mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. It says, And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men have upset the world. They've upset the world and they have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received the pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And many of them therefore believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had also been proclaimed by Paul and Berea, also they came there likewise agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who, had, who conducted Paul uh, brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. In Acts chapter 17, there's three characteristics that I find of the person who turns their world right side up for God's sake. They emerge, and the first one that you can't help but notice is that if we're going to turn our world upside down for God's sake, we must be courageous people. We must be people of courage and understand that as we look at what God has to say, that that there is no way in the world that any of us can ever influence this world our world for Christ who lacks courage. Courageous people turn their world right side up for God's sake. You know, Paul reminded Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline, according to 2 Timothy 1.7. Courage and boldness were essential to the early church if they were to have an impact on the lives of those that God brought into their presence. You know, if you think about the evidence that's there, nothing, when you think about Paul and you think about courage, he is probably the the epitome or exemplifies what we need to be as God's people when it comes to courageous. He was a man of courage. Nothing stopped him from being used by God to turn his world right side up for God's sake. Nothing stopped him. Not even the the prospect of trials or persecution, not even death could silence his witness nor hide his light in the dark world in which he lived. Turn with me ahead a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 20 and notice what he basically summarizes his whole mental attitude when it comes to being courageous. In Acts chapter 20 verses 22 through 24 we read these words. He says, and now behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. He says, but you know what? I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself. In order that I may finish my course in the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Notice what he says. The only thing I am certain of is that in the next city I go to, bonds and affliction await me. 
There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be persecution for the Lord's sake. I am guaranteed that by God. But you know what? That's not going to stop me. Because I don't have a choice. I am compelled. I'm under compulsion. And woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. For God has given to me and to those of us who have come to faith in Christ the remedy for the problem of sin and death and eternal separation from God. The roadmap, so to speak, to keep a person from spending eternally, eternity separated from God in hell. You and I know who know Christ how to avoid the consequences and punishment of God for sin. We've got that information. We're to share it with the world. He said, woe is me. If I'm under compulsion, I don't have a choice. I mean, what kind of people can we be who know, how to t- who know the road and the path that leads to eternal uh, forgiveness from God and eternal presence of God where we will enjoy the presence of God forever and ever? We know how to get there, and yet we won't tell people around us. He said, that's not even an option. I mean, how can we, how can we think like that as if somehow or another, well, you know, we're not going to share that. And he knew what he was talking about. Turn ahead to 2 Corinthians. Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. And notice in chapter 11. What he was saying was, he goes, you know what? I'm going to fight the good fight. I'm going to finish the course. I'm going to keep the faith. He goes, this is what God has entrusted to me. To tell the world that God loves people. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. We saw last time as we studied Acts 16, the Philippian jailer who fell on his knees and cried out to Paul and Silas, What must I do to be saved? And he said, Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll never be held accountable for sin. You'll never be judged or condemned by God for sin that you will have eternal life and you will enter into the presence of God for all of eternity and your roadmap or, or the path, so to speak, to heaven. Jesus said himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You can't get there but through me. Trust in me. Believe on me. And, and Paul knew what he was talking about. He knew that there would be persecution and affliction in 2 Corinthians 11. Notice what he says in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so in far more labors and more imprisonments and beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers and dangers from ro- robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from these external things, there's the daily pressure upon me of concern for all of the churches. Paul knew the drill. He understood it quite clearly. He would go into a city, he would proclaim sin, judgment, the consequences of such, and the remedy for sin is faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. He knew it. Everywhere that he'd go, he'd tell people of God's plan for forgiveness found in Christ. And everywhere that he'd go, he would be persecuted for the message. And everywhere that he'd go, he'd still praise God. Because you know what? Some people would receive the message. Other people would reject the message. But he still knew what the message was. And he knew what his mission was. And he was never sidetracked by any of it. The man turned his world upside down because he was courageous for the Lord's sake. 
He knew what to expect. All he had to do was rub the scars on his body. He knew what it felt like to be persecuted for Christ's sake and still continue to do what God had called him to do. And the journeys, if you go back to Acts chapter 17, were given a, a road map, so to speak, of where he was going after he left Philippi. He's heading southwest. Uh, the journey would take him 30 miles to Amphipolis, the first city, and another 30 miles after that to Apollonia. And then ultimately, he would wind up in Thessalonica about 40 miles away. And what's interesting as we look at this, as he traveled along the uh, Ignatian uh, Highway, the Roman Highway that was there, that there was a side note that I was thinking about as I was going through it, and that's this, that he traveled or averaged, they traveled or averaged about 30 miles a day. And in their condition, when you think about the fact that they were beaten and thrown into prison, they weren't in the best of physical condition. And you've got to ask yourself the question, how in the world did they travel those kind of distances? When they got to Amphipolis, after 30 miles, they spent the night there. They went up, got up again. They went another 30 miles. They spent the night there. They traveled another 40. And these are the, the realities of what we're talking about. You know, the thing I love about the Bible, it's real. It's about real people in real time in real places who are accomplishing real things to turn their world right side up for God's sake. And the only thing that we can come up with is that they had to be traveling by horseback because they couldn't have, they couldn't have walked that great a distance. And if that was true, and I believe that it is, you've got to ask the question, where did they get the supplies that they needed to make the journey? And the first thing that you've got to think about is that, you know what? You've got Lydia and her household. And many of those who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in Philippi saying, you know what? Our stuff is no longer our stuff. We realize for the first time that everything that we have comes from the hand of God, that the earth is the Lord and all that it contains. And so if you've ever wondered why God has chosen to bless you in any physical, material way, Make no mistake about it. It is so that you can use those resources to turn your world right side up for God's sake. That you can fund people that are traveling around the world telling people of God's redemptive plan through Jesus Christ. That you can fund churches who are committed to doing that work, to get that message out. You ever wonder sometimes, it's like, oh God, why have you blessed me? Hey, he blessed you so that he can use the resources given to you to reach others for the kingdom of God. So that they can hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's as simple as that. The earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. You and I don't own anything. We manage the resources God entrusts to us. It's like the man who had the colt. Jesus said, when you go into town, you're going to find an owner who has a colt. Bring that colt. It's never been rented on. And the reason that he has it is because I've entrusted it to him so that I can now ride on it as I enter into Jerusalem. That's the whole reason that the guy had it to begin with. He may have thought he had it for other reasons. But God made his plans very real to him. Hey, and when he went and said, the master has use for it, the guy didn't even hesitate. What master? Use for what? Hey, he just said, here, it's his. I'm just watching it for him. So many of us become so possessive. You remember we were talking about the genuine evidences of a person who is truly born again, who's really been born from above by God and not from below by the will of man, and evidence of a person who's truly born again. We saw was that there would be hospitality, that there would be genuine love, that they would be baptized publicly proclaiming their faith in Christ, that there would be reparation and restoration as we saw in Zacchaeus' life who said, if I've cheated anybody and I know that I have, I will return to them whatever it is I've cheated from them four times. I will make things right. We also see very, very real evidence of a person who is truly born again is that we become generous givers to the cause of Christ. It's not ours. Nothing else matters but that other people can hear about the love of God that's in Christ. 
See, courageous people going back, we notice in Acts chapter 17, that it said that this was his custom. This is what he did. In verse 2, he says, according to Paul's custom, he went into the synagogue. Paul was driven by a burning desire to see his fellow Jews saved, to come to know Christ in in a personal way, to accept him as their Lord and Savior, as the Savior of the world, to be forgiven by God by believing that Christ died on the cross for their sins and rose again from the dead. He knew what to expect. All he had to do, as I said, was to touch those scars that were on his body. He knew what to expect, but as according to his custom, he did the same thing. Every city that he went to, as we're going through the book, of Acts, we have noticed every city and town that he went to, he was met with opposition. There were those who stirred up people against him. There were those where the enemy would come out himself, and and Satan, through demon-possessed people, would, would oppose the work of God. Everywhere that he went, it was shaken up. And yet many of us are timid rather than courageous when it comes to sharing the gospel with others. I had a friend a couple of weeks ago who shared with me a story And he was troubled by what had occurred. And I want to share it with you for the purpose of helping all of us to relate to how difficult it can be at times to share the gospel with those that God brings into our life. He was laying in a hospital bed recovering from a surgery. And there was a man in his room with him. They were sharing a room together who had gone through a similar surgery and was recovering as well. And he said that he heard the guy moaning and complaining and groaning about how difficult life was and why was he going through what he was going through. And all that you go through, the, you know, the, the poor me's, anytime that any of us are in situations like that, we have a tendency to go that direction. And he said that, you know, I lay there with him for almost a day and a night. He goes, and Chuck, I never once shared with him the love of God that's in Christ. And he asked me this question. He said, what's wrong with me? I said, you know what? And as I struggled with that, I realized that what's wrong with him is what's wrong with many of us at different times and in different places. Who can't relate to that story? And I'm sure even now you're thinking of a time where the door was opened wide and you had the opportunity and yet you didn't take advantage of it. And as you walked away or drove away, the Spirit of God was, you know, convicting you of, man, you know what? I mean, that door was open as wide as what must I do to be saved? And why didn't you say anything? Another friend was sitting at a football game, and the coaches of his son were sitting behind him. And this was at a higher level game, and the coaches looked at him and said, uh, where's your son? He said, well, he's home. He's resting up because, you know, tomorrow we have a big game, and he wanted to rest up. You know, and they smiled, and they liked that answer. Yeah, he's out. You know, he's, at least he's not out at the game tonight. He's getting rest. He's ready for the big game. But my friend said, but you know what? But, you know, in reality, what happened was not only was he resting, which wasn't a lie, but he had just got the latest book in the Left Behind series. And he loved reading those books. And he read rather stay home and read that book than he would have wanted to go to this game. So he stayed home, he read the book, and he also rested. And yet he realized that that was an opportunity that he had to share with those men where his son was coming from spiritually. And yet he didn't take advantage of it. And so as I think about that, and even in my own failings in my own life of taking advantage of opportunities like that, I begin to ask a question, and that is, you know, what do we have to do in life to, uh, to cultivate the courage to turn our world right side up? And if you've ever struggled with sharing the love of God that's in Christ, then I just want to share with you three things that I think will help us in cultivating courage. Because, you know, courage doesn't happen by accident. It's cultivated, and I believe it's the direct result of at least three spiritual virtues. Virtue number one, faith. And faith has to do with trusting God. Turn with me to Psalm 27 for a moment. And look at what David had to say 
about trusting God. Faith is trusting God. David, often troubled and pursued by his enemies, repeatedly proclaimed his absolute trust in God. It says in Psalm 27, starting with verse 1, he says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise up against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Why was he so confident? Why was he so courageous? Paul echoed the same thought in Ephesians 6.10 when he wrote, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. What he's saying is God is trustworthy in the most difficult of circumstances. And all throughout scripture, we see those, that trustworthiness demonstrated. We see it in the life of Daniel. We see it in the life of his friends, his companions. We see it all through scripture that in the most difficult of times, God is trustworthy. That we can have faith in him and rely upon him. An article in the National Geographic several years ago provided a penetrating picture of God's protective wings and his covering. It says that after a forest fire in Yellowstone National Park, forest rangers began their trek up a mountain to assess the inferno's damage. One ranger found a bird literally petrified in ashes, perched statuesquely on the ground at the base of the tree, and somewhat sickened by the sight of what he saw, he took a, 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 a stick and he poked the bird and knocked it over. And as he knocked this bird over, from underneath this bird's wings came three chicks that were still alive that ran to safety. This bird, knowing the toxic effects of the fumes that were there that could have flown away and left her, her, her baby birds behind, knew as a love of a mother or a father can only know that, he, that she would lay down her life for her children. You know, when I think about that beautiful picture of what genuine love is, there's no greater love than this than a man would lay down his life for his friend. And if we stop and realize and think about this for a moment, do you realize that God did not hold back his best for us when the Lord Jesus Christ died upon the cross for the sins of the world? For those who would believe, we would find forgiveness from God. See, God didn't hold back his best. We can trust him. He's trustworthy. As Peter walked across the stormy waters and he had his eyes on Jesus and he was fixed upon him, he found himself doing a miraculous thing through the power and the strength of God. Be strong in the Lord and courageous in his strength. And as he walked out, he began to look around and realize, I can't do this on my own. And he took his eyes off the Lord and on his circumstances. And we got the quickest prayer that you ever hear uttered in all of scripture. Save me. He started to sink. He was going down. Why? Because he didn't trust the Lord. It was like the storm's bigger than the Lord. This catastrophe's bigger than the Lord. And I stop and think and I wonder at times, what's the worst thing that could ever happen to us as we share the gospel with someone else? Laying in a hospital bed? What's the worst thing that happened? Guy just doesn't want to talk to you anymore. What's the worst thing that happened? Oh, gee, maybe the coaches will look differently at this player who was a good player. Would it change their attitude toward him? Would it change the playing time that he had? And even if it did, for Christ's sake, what's the big deal about that? See, what do we think we're going to lose? Our job? God gave you your job. People don't give us anything. We respect people and we, we, we respect their authority and we recognize that God uses people to accomplish his purposes. But never underestimate nor ever fail to believe that it's God who gives us all that we have. 
We don't have to sell out for any human being because God can more than adequately take care of us. He can do exceedingly, abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think or ever hope. We can be courageous in the Lord because we know that we can trust Him. The second thing is that it also involves purity. And what I mean by purity is that we can't be dirty before God and be courageous for God's sake. We can't turn our world right side up if we're living in sin. David wrote in Psalm 7, O Lord my God, in thee I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me. Deliver me, lest uh, he tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away, while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is any injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend, or have plundered him who without cause was my adversary... Let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. Faced with difficult trials, David declared that there was no unconfessed sin in his life. God, if there's any dirtiness at all, if there's any wickedness in me, if I'm sinning before you, God, I confess my sin right now. And not only do I agree with you what I'm doing is wrong, but I turn and I repent from sin. And I turn from sin and turn to you. Forgive me for my sin. You and I can't turn our world right side up if we're dirty before God. If there's a chink in the righteousness or the breastplate of righteousness in our life, we can't make a difference for God's sake. Paul, if there's anything wicked in me, God, show me so I can confess it because you know what? I need your power and I need your strength and I need you to be leading the way before me. I need you to be walking beside me everywhere that I go because I already know what I'm getting into before I get there. I need you. Some of us are the biggest stumbling blocks to the people around us for the cause of Christ. We need to ask God's forgiveness. We need to turn from sin. And we need to turn back to God. Hope. Thanking God in advance for what He's about to do. Courage comes from hope. Thanking God in advance for the victory. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, Judah faced an invasion by combined force of the Moabites and the Ammonites. King Jehoshaphat, knowing Judah was powerless against her enemies, prayed for the Lord for help. He then led his people out to meet the attackers. And we are told that he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire. They went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. The Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. These people went out in courage and said, God, we thank you in advance for what you're about to do because righteousness is on our side. And even if we die in battle, we die courageously knowing that we can totally, fully, implicitly trust in you. Confidence because we have no sin before you and we know that our life is right before you. And we know that if you lead us, that you won't lead us in anything other than the path that you want us to go. And so that's what they did. They had faith. They trusted God. There was purity in their life. They confessed their sin. And there was hope, knowing that they could thank God in advance for what He was about to do. We need to become more courageous if we're to turn our world right side up for the kingdom of God. The second thing that we also need is a sense of conviction. And the conviction, as we go back to Acts chapter 17, had to do with the fact that Paul was absolutely convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God's word is the ultimate truth. It is non-negotiable. That's the way it is, period. God said it, I believe it, and there's nothing else to discuss. That's the way it is. We either receive that or we reject that. 
And he says, according to his custom, he went to them in the synagogue and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. The word of God is truth. You know, I'm, 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 I'm impressed as I go through the book of Acts how many times the word reasoned is used. He reasoned with them. He dialogued with them. He had questions and answers with them. It was like, what is it that you understand? What is it that you think you believe? What is it that, that you have questions about? Let's talk about it. And let's get it out in the open. Oh, you believe that you know people are good. Okay, well, let me give you evidence that they're not. Oh, you believe that if you do good things, that'll get you to heaven. Well, let me give you evidence that you know even on your best day, you can't do enough good stuff. What is it that you believe? All religions are the same. Well, let me help you understand that Christianity is 180 degrees different from every other world religion. Every world religion tries to work its way to God and Christianity says that God did it all in the person and the work of Christ. You believe in Him or nothing. That's the way that it is, period. End of conversation. He reasoned with them. He dialogued with them. He was open to their questions and they sat down and they had those discussions. It gives us that opportunity when we're talking to someone to listen to them. Let them talk first. What is it that troubles you? What is it that you believe? Have you ever had any, gone to church in your life? Do you have any kind of background at all? Do you believe in God, not believe in God? Why or why not? Let them talk. Let them expose their thoughts and their heart. And then you can address those questions in love. Speak the truth in love. But he also, noticed that, he, he reasoned from the scriptures. Everything that he shared with them was biblically based. Everything that he believed came from the Word of God. It's the Bible that provides the answers to questions about faith. It's not our opinions and it's not empty human wisdom. It's the Scriptures and the Scriptures alone. Everywhere that he went, Paul explained sin and judgment, the sacrificial system. He explained that the purposes of God, forgiveness in Christ, a suffering Savior, the resurrection from the dead. He explained everything to those who would listen from the Word of God. Everything. He didn't have an opinion about anything because he knew that, you know what, that he could be deceived in his opinions as well as any of us. Everything related back to Scripture. It says that he explained. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He explained and gave evidence. The word explained is the word literally which means opening. It's a very strong word and as a doctor, a physician, Luke could appreciate the use of this word because it describes the opening of a womb in Luke chapter 2 verse 23. In the 24th chapter, uh, spiritual openings were talked about in Luke where he says, and then their eyes, speaking of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. He disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road? And listen, and opened the scriptures to us. It was like it came forth as if a new birth. They understood the things of God. They understood what was being said. Everything came from Scripture and it was opened up to them. You know, it's my intent or hope that every time I speak that there's a very clear understanding of what has been said. It doesn't mean that you'll like what's said. It just means that you understand what's said. I heard a guy walking out one day and said, I don't like that guy. And I was, I was fortunate enough to be close enough to him to hear the conversation. And the gal that was with him said, well, why don't you like him? Because he said that unless I ask God to forgive me of sin and believe that Jesus Christ died for me and rose from the dead. He said, unless I believe that, that I'm going to go to hell. I said, praise God. He understood. That's the gospel. That's the truth. That's the message. That's the word of God. Rather than someone walking out saying, wow, man, I really liked what he said, but I'm not real sure what it was. It's like being in an English lit class. Have you ever been in an English lit class? This is the kind of stuff you got going on. Hence from my sight, nor let me thus pollute my eyes with looking on a wretch like thee. Thou cause of my ills, I sicken at thy loathsome presence. 
Now, that's great there. But where I come from, you know what? Get out of my face. You're making me sick. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, we want to be able to relate to people in words that they can understand. We got the greatest message at all. God loves people, but the problem is that we're all sinful and we don't deserve to be in His sight. He says, you know what? Your sin makes me sick. Get out of my, get out of my sight for all of eternity. We got the greatest message at all, but God still loves us anyway. And He sent Christ to die for us. He pursued us in that everlasting love of His. That those who would repent, turn from sin, confess their sin, trust in God, believe that Jesus Christ died for them and rose again from the dead, the Bible says, and you shall be saved. I mean, the simplicity of that, the beauty of that. We don't have to confuse people with, hence, thus, thy, thee, though. Why? Tell it the way it is. Paul's conviction of the truth was, notice what he said, he gave evidence. He gave evidence. And the evidence was from the Word of God. Paul was courageous. And he held deep convictions. And he also exhibited great patience and care. He took the time to share with those. It says that he was there for three Sabbaths. Three different weeks he kept coming back and sharing over and over again. Asking the same questions. Answering the same questions. Giving them evidence. Reasoning with them. Explaining to them. Opening up an understanding of God and the Word of God. So that they would, they would be in a position at least to make a decision. He treated people with respect and dignity. He didn't demand that they swallow what he said just simply because he said it. And he didn't push them to a decision. Why? Because only God can open the heart of a person to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not trying to close a deal. We're not trying to sign people up. We're going to explain to them God's program, God's plan. And we're going to trust God to allow that person to make that decision. You know, most decisions that I've seen that have been forced upon people, let me give you a good illustration of one. There was a guy that I know that was at a breakfast with a bunch of guys, and there was a speaker who said, hey, you know what, if you want to trust in Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins, do so right now. And they went to this guy and said, would you like to do that, sir? And, and he was like surrounded by these guys. It's like, hey, you want to trust Christ today, don't you? Come on, everybody surround him. You do, right? And he was like going, oh, uh, you know, and it was, what do you want to say? You're surrounded by crazy people. You do whatever they tell you to do. How do I do it? What do I got to say? Because you're thinking, I got to get out of here. You people are nuts. And, oh, you know, and everyone's running around. Hey, praise God. He trusted in Christ, signed the card, said the prayer, whatever it was he did. And, I, and, and little did they know that that guy coming to me later said, you know what? Man, you know what? I couldn't wait to get out of there. I just told them whatever it is that they wanted to hear. We can't force people into the kingdom of God. God doesn't force people into the kingdom of God. God gives man the freedom to choose him or to reject him. Who do we think we are that we're trying to push people into the kingdom of God? Any presentation of the gospel that does not allow the person the freedom to choose is not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't force anybody to turn from sin and to turn to God. Paul knew that. He understood that. And notice what happened. He says, this Jesus, in verse 3, whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's the Savior of the world. It says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. It says, but the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, coming upon the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. Notice this. There were those who received the message gladly, and there were those who rejected it. I don't want to hear it. In fact, we're going to do everything we can to shut you up. And they went to Jason's house. And this is interesting. You want to talk about an unsung hero. The Bible, the world is filled with unsung heroes. Men and women who stand up 
courageously. They stand up because they're men and women of character. And that's the third thing that we need if we're going to be men and women who change our world right side up for the kingdom of God. They had character. And Jason represents all of those unsung heroes of God. And what I mean by that is this. Paul and Silas were hated by his enemies. And yet Jason had the courage to say, but you know what? I'm not going to hesitate to identify myself with you. You come into our home. We will express hospitality to you. We will open up our home to you. Our home is your home. Anything you need, you can have for God's sake. We're here together to win people to Christ. Come with me. They identified themselves. Throughout the ministry that God has given me, I've met many men who are like that. Years ago, when Jackie Slater and Doug Smith came to me and said, we want you to come onto this team, the Los Angeles Rams, and we want you to teach a Bible study. And don't worry about it because you're going to be with us. And they would tell the guard, here's the guy who's coming. He's with us. Let him in. They would go to the coach and say, we want him here. He's with us. He's one of us. Let him in. We want him to travel with us. We want him to be on the plane with us. He's with us. Is it okay if he comes with us on the road? They were brave and courageous men that said, you know what, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. He's with us. The Anaheim Angels, the same thing. Guys like Tim Salmon and Garrett Anderson. Hey, he's with us and we're not ashamed to be identified with him. He's a godly man who's here to proclaim the ways of God and he's with us. They open the door so that he can go in and present the gospel. Today, working with the, Anaheim, with the uh, Mighty Ducks, a man named Pavel Trinka from the Czech Republic who came to faith in Christ about a year ago came to me and said, we want you to teach a Bible study. Nobody goes to chapel in the National Hockey League. There are people from all over the world. He said, nobody goes. He goes, so what can you hear coming? <laughs> so it's like, hey, we want you to come. And we've got six guys coming that are from all over the world, that are getting to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of the word of God because he, and he, he is courageous enough to say, we want him here, he's with us. And I'll tell you what, he was scared to start out. But he's a man who's cultivating courage because he's learning to have faith in God and totally trusting in him. He has hope in the future of what will God do throughout, his, throughout this obedience. And as we look at all of these things, we need to become courageous people. And you know what? And Jason was such a man. He was a man of courage. He said, I don't care what anybody says about Paul and Silas and Timothy and all you got. You know what? They're with me. And he paid a price. They dragged him out of his house. And they said, listen, if you don't post a, a financial bond right now and these guys keep causing trouble, then we're going to take everything that you own. And Paul and Silas, in respect for what he had gone through, decided it was time to go to another city that they had already planted the seeds of the gospel. But they were noble-minded people. And the reason that they were noble-minded or lofty-minded, the Bible tells us, is because they had character that came from the Word of God. Notice that. When you look at the, Thessal the, the people in Berea, it says that they were more noble-minded than those in Thess Thessalonica. And we'll put it all together with this. They received the Word with gladness. What made them noble-minded or having a lofty mind, the Bible says that we're to take captive every thought in obedience to Christ. We need to develop godly minds that think like God. The world that we live in is in opposition to God. Everything that we learn, everything that we taught, for the most part, we're going to find is in opposition to the things of God. We need to develop a godly mindset. And the only way that we can do that is we need to be people who receive the word with gladness. 
Stop making excuses. Stop trying to look for a way out. Stop trying to read in between verses and do you know, all the juggling that we try to do so that we can justify the things that we want to do. Be open and teachable to the Word of God and allow God to tell you what truth is and what you need to do in your life and how to respond accordingly. They said, it doesn't matter what we believe up to this point. Whatever the Word of God tells us is now what we're going to adopt as our way of life and philosophy. Paul said, all the things I considered as valuable in my past, everything that I learned, everything that brought me to this point, I considered all rubbish now for the surpassing value of knowing Christ and Him crucified and the power of His resurrection. I know what I need to know. I need to learn how to think anew because everything I've learned up to this point is contrary to the Word of God. They received the Word gladly. Notice also, they received it with great eagerness. The word means that they, they I mean, when they saw there was, there was a Bible study that broke out, they ran to it. Really? When was the last time you ran to get to a Bible study? You couldn't wait to get there. Remember what we had already talked about is that, man, they couldn't wait till next week. Don't stop now. Keep on preaching. Well, you pro- have you looked at your watch yet? See, they with great eagerness, they were like going, man, there's nothing more important in life than hearing God's truth. When was the last time you were so excited you couldn't wait to get to a Bible study? You couldn't wait to get to a church service? I mean, it's like most people, you got to drag people. And there's something wrong with our hearts, and there may be something wrong with the presentation, but there certainly isn't anything wrong with the Word of God. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. All Scripture is, is inspired by God and profitable. You'll never waste your time studying the Word of God. We need to become people who have a great eagerness and hunger. I go to concerts. I go to uh, sporting events. I see people lined up. They're pushing and shoving. They can't wait to get in. What's happened to us? When was the last time you pushed and shoved and couldn't wait to get up and you got up two hours early and you're going, oh, only another hour till we leave for church. Man, can't we go now? This morning, morning, yes, yes, it was today. Oh, yeah. But that's because you left him in bed. I know how that goes. It's like, but with great eagerness, they had a hunger for the word of God. And you know what? The only way to develop a hunger for the Word of God is to examine the Word of God daily. They examined the Word of God daily. Some of us, you can leave your Bible right where you're at and you can pick it up again next week because that's the last time that you look at it after you leave here. Was that in love? Sometimes I get confused. It's like, you know what I mean? So you can drive around and be on top of the hood of your car, you know, on the roof of your car. You just drive around all week long and it's like, oh, okay. Well, there it is. You know, load up the car. That's where we left it. In, 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 a, in a very serious note, we need to become, as Pastor Day has been saying in the main worship service, self-feeders. We need to feed you, but you also need to feed yourself. See, they were more noble-minded than the believers at Thessalonica because what? They received the word with great eagerness and they examined the word daily to see if the things that even the great Apostle Paul was teaching lined up with the truth of God's word. Never take any man's statements as gospel until you examine the gospel and the word of God against what that man has said. Even the great Apostle Paul. And he said, you know what? I love these people because they just don't believe everything that I say without first examining it against the Word of God. They examine it daily. Can I challenge you in closing to make this commitment before God? 
to become people who examine the Word of God daily. Get yourself a go through the Bible in a year. You know, every Bible, most Bibles have a format that you can actually follow. You want to go through the Bible in a year. Some of us haven't been through the Bible, and, and we've been believers 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, never gone through the complete Bible. Make yourself a commitment here and now that you want to be a person who examines the Word daily to make a commitment to go through the Word of God in a year. And you watch and see like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the Word so that in it you may grow in respect to salvation. It's only as we study the Word of God that we become more aware of who God is and more aware of God makes us more aware of what He wants in our life. And more aware of what He wants in our life is that you and I will be obedient to God and we will turn our world right side up for God's sake. I had a friend who was at a restaurant and the gal came over to him and he said to her, have you come to a point in your life where you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? And the gal looked at him and just like, no. And he went to grab a booklet or a track of four spiritual laws to hand it to her so that she would have. He planted a thought and he wanted to give it to her and he realized when he went in his pocket it was gone. He didn't have any left. So as she was doing other tables and as she came back, he had already taken time on a napkin to present the gospel of Jesus Christ, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we're separated from God, that we need to come through to forgiveness by believing in Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection for our sins. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as she came back, he said, do you mind if I give this to you? It'll tell you how to get right with God. And she said, no, that'd be great. And he gave it to her. He left that day. Came back several weeks later and she came running over to the table. And she said, I just want to let you know that I've trusted in Christ as my Savior. And she said, as she pulled out the napkin, it was all torn up and in pieces almost. She said, could you do me a favor and just write that down for me again? Because I've been showing so many of my friends that it's getting all worn out and it's falling apart. But can you write it again for me so that I can show those that God brings into my life? I think, when was the last time that you or I shared the simple message of God's love with the people God brings into our life every day? We will never turn our world right side up for God's sake until we have the courage and the conviction and the character to share that love with those that God brings. May we become more courageous as God entrusts us with the greatest message the world can ever hear. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever will believe in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. See you next week. Rest.